Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is your host, Mireya Perez, and because today's episode is a bit lengthy, but I promise you it's super good, I'm going to dive right on in. But just to give you a quick peek of some of the moments you should look out for, and when you hear them, you'll recognize them because I'm going to give you a little bit of it right here. He says things such as, if you're afraid of criticism, you're afraid of success because the two go together. The beginning of getting better starts with admitting that things aren't right. We're as big as everyone we're connected to. That's just a little glimpse of the profound conversation that I have today with none other than Dr. Jonathan Downey. Dr. Jonathan Downey is a consultant conference business and church interpreter, interpreting between French and English, as well as an interpreting researcher, author, and speaker. His latest book, Interpreters vs. Machines, Can Interpreters Survive in an AI-Dominated World, was published by Routledge in 2019, as well as co-hosting the popular Troublesome Terps podcast with Alexander Drexel, Alexander Gansmeyer, and Sarah Hecke. He also runs the Inside Interpreting YouTube channel. So, without further ado, here's Dr. Jonathan Downey. Jonathan, I'm excited you're here with us today. I can't wait to dive into the topic of conversation that we have for everyone here and just be able to pick your brain today. So I'm excited you're here. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Look, the very first question that I'd like to tell everybody, and that's because I'd like to take it way back, is ask our guest what you aspired to be when you grew up. I always love to see if it's anywhere near the same or not. And I've had all kinds of responses, so I'm excited to hear yours. What did you aspire to be when you grew up? I, aspire, I actually told this story recently uh, during a church sermon. I aspired to be a football manager, so that soccer for the U.S. Um, I wanted to be a soccer manager because I realized I had no skills as a player, so I might as well boss the players around. <laughs> uh, or, and I wanted to be a paleontologist, which is someone who digs up dinosaurs. Um, I still really like watching archaeological stuff where they're digging up stuff that people used to live in, but I've kind of lost my dinosaur interest a little bit. I only have one favourite dinosaur now. Um, <laughs> but that's what I wanted to be when, when I was growing up. Um, you grow up around a football madhouse. You grow up buying dinosaur magazines every week and that's what you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And at some point, you ended up being a language professional and we're going to get to that. But... First, share with us a fond memory of where you grew up. <laughs> so where I, where I grew up until I was about 11, I don't have that many fond memories of because it was quite a, it was a very rough area. Mm. Uh, as far as I'm aware, we were the first family in the history of that area to send someone to university. Um, it was an area that 
had lots of problems, which I don't particularly want to go into. But we moved out there when I was about 11, 12, I think. Mm -hmm. But one fun memory that I do have, which, you know, was there whenever my mum and dad were there, was that my mum and dad had something called an open house, which meant that everyone was automatically welcome to the house. You didn't didn't have to ask beforehand unless there was some family special event on. And so it's a true story. There were six of us growing up. I'm the youngest of, of four kids. So my mum would start cooking for six. By the time everyone sat down at our old family wooden table for dinner, she'd be serving 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, the, the neighbour's kids would end up coming for dinner. One time my brother was going to a concert and he had like 20 of his friends and they had nowhere to stay. So some of his friends slept in the bath and some of his, you know, we, we had just people <laughs> sleeping everywhere. But I grew up in an environment then where it was normal at dinner that you might have someone kind of really rough off the streets on one side of the table and a missionary or a pastor on the other. Mm. And so I we I got used to seeing people from all over the world. I got used to seeing people from all sorts of backgrounds. And it it made me realize that there was far more outside of, you know, there was far more to the world than what was outside my front door. A lot of people my age grew up with football player posters on their wall. I grew up with a map of the world on my wall. I love it. Um, and my my earliest memory, which I think says a lot, was when I was a single digit number of years. I don't want to give away exactly how old I am. When I was a single digit number of years, I watched the Berlin Wall fall live on TV. Oh, and I didn't understand exactly what it meant. But I knew something had happened. And that seemed to be part of a, a long web of kind of family connections around the world, a long web of of my own journey. Mm-hmm. And when you look back at your childhood, and I know everyone's got selective childhood memories, that's how memories work. But to realise the kind of people that my mum and dad introduced me to, the kind of breadth of experience that they introduced me to, and the fact that I grew up with a map of the world on my wall, it says something about where I ended up. Oh, absolutely. I could not agree more. And let's just share for those listening and meeting you for the first time, Jonathan, where are you from? Originally, I'm from a uh, the west of Scotland, so Blantyre and Hamilton, which is just outside of Glasgow. It's the largest city. I'm now currently in the, the east of Scotland, in Edinburgh. And so that's why some people say I have an accent. I have no <laughs> idea where they get that from. I don't know what, I don't know what they mean. No idea. <laughs> but to be honest, I'm kind of tame Scot because my mum's English. My dad was Scottish. My dad passed away when I was 17. Um, so I had this kind of English-Scottish thing any, anyway. And also... You so I grew up speaking more properly than a lot of people in the area that we lived in, and then when you move east, you know it's like the West East thing in Scotland are real. And so again, I have a, a softer accent than pretty much anyone I grew up with. That see, there you have it, guys. So <laughs> if you think I'm hard to understand, I can exactly. really introduce you to some people. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What at what point, Jonathan, in your journey did you come across? this idea of possibly becoming a language professional, did that come later in the years or what did this, did this grow within you uh, as you were young? Do you recall? So imagine yourself as a a 15 year old, I think 15, uh, 14, 15 year old. I'm on my very first foreign trip. It was in a bus because it was one of those trips where, you know, people scrimped and saved to go on it anyway. And it was like a youth conference in, in Offenburg in uh, the Black Forest in Germany, or near the edge of the Black Forest, I think. 
So I'm on this bus uh, with a bunch of other Christian young people going to this conference. And we arrive in Germany and I thought I spoke German because I owned the German phrase book. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a good joke. So we arrive in Germany and I'm going to this conference and here, here you've, you've got this thing, you've got this really noisy, good music band. And then this guy st- stands up to speak. He was like the first speaker. And I realized that on one end of the stage was one person. And I think it was both ladies at, at that point. There was one person standing at one end of the stage, one person standing at the opposite end of the stage, and this guy standing in the middle. I'd never seen anything like this before. And suddenly this guy speaks fluent German, starts saying stuff in German. And these two people on the side are, are obviously not speaking German. I was fluent enough to know that one of them was speaking French and the other one was speaking English. And since my French wasn't brilliant, then I'd listened to the English one. And I suddenly went, that's incredible. And I fell in love with the idea of interpreting then. And then a couple of years later, kind of been that much later, I was at another youth conference, this time in Brighton in England. And because I spoke, my French was a bit better then. Uh, someone came up to me and said, this guy wants to share when they're preaching in the street could you interpret for him? So here I am interpreting in the middle of uh, Brighton city centre in front of 200 young people at the conference and anyone who happens to be walking by. Wait, literally out in the street? Literally literally out in the street. Was my very first time ever interpreting was literally out in the street. Wow, look at you. With like a big band. And then um, not long after that, I went to France as part of my year abroad. And because I'd already interpreted once, they're like, you speak English, you speak French. We, I. Um, and so they, are having their, they were having their European Youth Conference in Dunkirk in the north of France that year. And they said, you know, they gave me a trial at youth group the Thursday before. By Friday night, I was interpreting at the church's youth conference on stage in front of 150 young people in France. And I did all the French to English by myself as a teenager. Late teens. Wow. And... I think with interpreting, and it was my experience when I was doing my master's, that people either do interpreting once and never want to touch it with the most gigantic stick ever, or they fall in love and never want to leave it. And I still have the CDs of me interpreting at that youth conference somewhere. I tried to do a like an academic study on them once, but I did them on the other interpreter because I'm not that daft. <laughs> and it kind of for me, I've always loved the stage. I've been preaching since I was what thirteen. For me, the ability to say something that opens the world, you know, it's so easy to forget sometimes that there are many occasions where without an interpreter, you get two groups of people who just cannot understand each other at all, apart from pointing. Right. And to be the person whose job it is to take what one person is saying and make it intelligible to, I don't know, 60 people in the audience who wouldn't have understood otherwise, that's something and that's a real responsibility. And I realized then that not only was interpreting fun, but when you watch people who are being emotionally touched and healed by what's being said, you go, mm. well, this thing, this, this is powerful. This is powerful. Yeah. And, and the moment that we forget that interpreting is powerful is the moment that we've forgotten what interpreting is actually about. I love that. Jonathan, at this point, I mean, you're still a teenager at a point in many people's lives that they're still struggling to find themselves. You encounter an opportunity where you're able to find your future self. Do you remember that feeling when you were on stage? Did it feel like this is, this is it for me? Do you, do you recall what you felt as you were there? 
So the, this is the thing when you're used when you've gotten kind of used to the stage because you've been preaching on and off since you were thirteen. More uh, depending uh, some seasons a lot, some seasons not at all. The stage feels like home. What didn't feel like home is having to hear someone else's voice and turn that into something new. And that the first two or three minutes were really nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I knew at that time this is this is going to be me. This is it. I think there was a you. You still don't fully know, and you know, I, at that time I, w- I was dating a girl who later became my wife. Um, th- there was a lot of stuff going on then. Yeah. <laughs> but but one thing that I do that I that I didn't realize then is that just because you're good at interpreting doesn't mean you have to be a translator too. Oh yes, thank you. Um. I might get get onto that later, but I realised that one thing I I did realise while while I was in France is I was naturally comfortable interpreting on stage and naturally enjoyed interpreting on stage and loved the adrenaline rush. But I got my first kind of paid translation job when I was in France, and I I I, I should have learned then. This is a warning sign that it's not going to go well because things didn't go well. But you soldier on anyway. Um, let's stop right there. Let's pause yeah. real quick and let's talk about that experience. What about that didn't go well? Do you recall? So I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what a translator... I knew what a translator was because I'd met Bible translators and I knew what they did. And they were always my heroes. They still are. Um, I've had the honour of meeting some Bible translators and people who can go into a country, learn a language that no one outside of a tribe has spoken, but the people and they're trying to want a Bible, and that, that's impressive. You know, to translate into something that's not had a written alphabet before, that's impressive. Mm. Um, but, so I get this translation from some sports coach, and he's wanting, I think it was some text for a website, and so I translate as best as I could with copious use of the dictionary. <laughs> um, Here comes you know a dictionary in the story again. <laughs> yeah, you, you know you're a struggling... You know, you're struggling in translation where basically every third word you're looking up in the bilingual dictionary. (laughs) I didn't know what being out of your depth felt like. And I thought it was just, this is a learning curve. And there's totally, there's two different things. But anyway, so I did my best. And I had never before met someone who quibbled over the translation of an individual word. Mm. And I, in various ways, messed up the kind of customer service of that. Because what did I know? I was a teenager. I was like 18, 19 I had no clue. Yeah. And that knocked my confidence because I, I then felt I've, I've, I've messed this up, what I'm going to do. Uh, the interpreting there was, you know, most of the time I was at an English language teacher in a school, an English language assistant, sorry, in a school. The interpreting would, would maybe happen, like apart from that conference, I think I had one other thing the entire time I was there. And so while I loved interpreting and fell in love with it, I had this impression that translation and something else was going to be how I made my living. Uh-huh. And maybe interpreting would come occasionally because that's the only experience I had had. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I messed up. I didn't know how to deal with client queries. I didn't know what to do about customer service. I didn't. But, you know, what did I know? I was 18, 19. Yeah, I, I was going to say. no clue. Yeah, you're super but young. The thing is, is people forget, and I, and I now want to help people not forget that your early mistakes can be formative if you're not careful. Hmm. And especially when you're a teenager and you're still trying to figure out who you are, you know, as an adult, you fail at something, you've probably failed at enough stuff that you know how to get back up 
and you know part of being an adult is just reducing the amount of time that you cry on the sofa and eat ice cream for (laughs) (laughs) when you're a teenager you don't know about the crying on the sofa and eating ice cream but because you've never had to do it before (laughs) right right um and so so that looking back now that there's almost like a therapy session for me (laughs) looking back (laughs) now I didn't realize how much that little thing would shape my approach to myself later but I also couldn't have predicted what I would find out about interpreting later. Wow. Um, and this is the thing is that, you know, if someone's re- listening to this, I was going to say reading this, what generation am I in? <laughs> if someone's listening to this and they're thinking about becoming an interpreter, I would say don't let early mess ups put you off. For sure. Um, I've got another story about that, which I will tell later, but you know, <laughs> you will, you will make, you will do dumb stuff in the beginning. That's what beginnings are about. Oh, I love that. That's what beginnings are about. I love that. That's so great. During your journey, was there ever a mentor or someone that helped guide you during during this journey of yours? So my entire, (laughs) which journey? See, this is the thing is, we also make the mistake that we're only ever on one journey. We're always on several. Oh gosh, yes. That's so profound. It's so true. So like, you know, if you ask me who my mentor has been in preaching, I could name all of them. If you ask me who my mentors have been in interpreting, now here's the thing. I've never had another... <laughs> no, let me, t- let me tell the story this way. Um, in terms of someone who's kind of sat and mentored my career the entire way through, there's been no one like that. But there was a book I read where the guy said, you make a mistake if you're looking for one mentor who can do everything. No one mm-hmm. can. You have mentors for seasons and mentors for reasons. And so I had... When I was doing my master's at, at Harriet Watt, they had two visitors who came to help us, you know, two professional interpreters. And Harriet Watt's a typical interpreting school. They, they work you hard. They, make, they want to make sure that if you pass, you're good enough to pass. And I totally agree with that standard. So they had two professionals come in. One person came in, listened to me on a bad day when I hadn't practiced and everything had gone wrong, and told me, uh, you need to lose your accent and you'll never be an interpreter anyway. You should think about doing something else. Wow. So again, I'm well, probably relatively early 20s at that. I would have been 21 or something at that point. Um, that's not helpful. So that knocks my confidence and makes me feel worse about the fact that because of the way I'd been academically, I had I had learned to coast and suddenly I come to master's and you cannot coast in interpreting master's. It's not physically possible. Mm. And here was me finding that out the hard way and having, you know, it's a nine month postgraduate. The actual practical training is like nine months. Trying to relearn behaviors in nine months is nearly impossible. And I'm feeling, you know, just thinking, you know, I'll I'll get through this, maybe I'll pass. But what do I do now, now that someone who knows what they're talking about said I don't have a future? A few weeks later, a lady comes along who I've had the pleasure to work with a couple of years ago. Lady comes along, she's a freelancer, she listens to me. It was an okay day. It wasn't the best day I've ever interpreted, but she listens to me interpreting and she said, you know, your accent is your unique selling point. No one else sounds like you in the interpret. And she said, you did a really good job. You're going to go far. Wow. It's like the complete opposite of this other guy. Because here's the thing. Are we going to judge on what we see right now? Because everyone's going to have bad days. Everyone, especially those who are academically, you know, are used to scoring A's, people people are going to have to relearn patterns. That That's life. Everyone's going to have a bad day. Everyone's going to sound a bit funny. 
are we going to judge people based on the one day where they messed up or are we going to judge them based on the fact that even on the day they messed up they kept on going and they did not give up right i was just going to say that had you given up when this guy came in and said you know you're not gonna make it your accent's an issue had you given up had you believed that and not continued you would have yeah. never come across this next person that said your accent is great. That's your selling point. You're going to be a great interpreter. Well, you know, I'd love I'd that. Paid for, I'd paid for the course and I'm Scottish. I'm not going to give up on a course I paid for. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> a... <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, yes, I think that would be the, the common thread, but there are absolutely people out there, right? Uh-huh. That are like, Oh, like, just like you said, this guy knows exactly what he's talking about. You know, he, he's a professional and he's telling me, that I should give this up because I'm no good. I mean, that could crush anyone's spirit, regardless of whether or not you've paid. We, we talked about this on the Troublesome Terps podcast. There are some people genuinely, and there seems to be some neurological thing, that there are some people genuinely who will never make great interpreters. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's okay. Right. But we need to give them the opportunity to prove that to themselves. Right. I personally think that, you know, you might, if someone's, te- you know, it's definitely if someone's teaching you for nine months and over the nine months they say, you know, they, they're honest with you over a nine month period. But if you're listening to someone for, I don't know, five minutes in a one hour session, you ha- you don't have enough data to say they're not going to make it. Mm. I mean, you, you know, 10 minutes, how much data do you need? No, you need to see their trajectory over quite a long time. You know, maybe they've come into the course and they've lost a parent or something. You don't know where the trajectory has been. And suddenly you're listening to them on the day when they've got a cold and you're just, no, don't do that. Don't do that. There are genuinely people who won't make it, but that doesn't mean that we need to kind of crush them. It's like, you know, well, let's encourage them to where they should go. Where they should go, right. Let's encourage them the right way. Um, Let's find the skills that they are good at. It could be that they're not going to make it as interpreters, but my goodness, they're great translators. Fine. Maybe they're going to be amazing journalists. Fine. It was, you know, we need more journalists who've had, who've had interpreter training so they don't call us translators anymore. It, it's not about what you're bad at. It's about what we can do with the skill that you've already shown. Mm. Different journeys, different mentors. I, I really can connect with that because I feel that throughout the years, I there was always this desire, you know, internal desire for me to just be able to meet that one person that would help guide my journey, my professional journey, because that's where I would have most difficulty is like, what direction am I going to take? If I could only tap into like, you know, in, in, the, in all the movies, there's always that one wise one. Obi-Wan. Right. And we're always, I've, I was always thinking if only, if only, and if there's one thing that I have learned throughout the years, it has been that I have had, different mentors along my way, along all of my different journeys. So I can absolutely resonate with what you're saying because it is so true. And I think that it just really depends on what journey you're on today. I think also, you know, I've had loads of people who have helped me in interpreting one way or another. Uh, A week after we're recording this, for the first time ever, I'm going to be having a debate with one of my mentors in front of some students. Really? Um, there's a lady called Elizabeth Tesselius. If you read anyone on the importance of practicing interpreting, read Elizabeth Tesselius. She's she's brilliant. One of the best, most practical 
scholars that I know, one of the loveliest people that I know. She, she's just amazing. But it just so happens that for the first time in my career, she and I disagree on something. And it's something relatively technical, but it's worth having a, a discussion about. And it it's hard to learn that you have to be free and you have to get to the point where you disagree with your mentors. If you never disagree with the people who have mentored you, you've not learned enough. Mm. The other thing is, and this was much harder for me to deal with, but I think it's a test everyone goes through, is everyone who feeds into you and mentors you is a flawed human like you. And some of the people whose writing have most inspired me for various reasons have shown big flaws. Yeah. And we have to be careful. There are occasions where you say, well, I can't learn anything more from what that person wrote because they have been so flawed, they've been so problematic that I don't feel I can feed myself on what they've written. But then there are other times where you go, I know what they've done. And I still think that they have, you know, I'm not going to believe them on the the area they were flawed in because that would be stupid. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to look at the areas they were strong in and say, what can I learn from that? Knowing how how flawed they were. Right. And sometimes your mentors will hurt you directly or indirectly. It's didn't mean to go here, but it's, it's so so hard to deal with that. Yeah, but there, there's there, there's part of a journey where you realise that someone who made stupid mistakes still does something to your life that was positive. Absolutely. And this is it, it's a whole other subject. We'll probably edit that out in post. But the, this whole thing of fallen mentors of um, I was reading it somewhere. Someone talking about people fall, falling off the pedestals you put them on. Right. And, and there's degrees of that. There's sometimes where they didn't just fall off the pedestal, they set the whole thing on fire. <laughs> I, I, I'm not talking about where someone falls so far, so fast, so wrongly, so stupidly. You know, that that's a whole other category. Abuse is a whole other category. Let, mm. let's, mm-hmm. But there are times when, you know, someone will be mentoring you and they'll they'll be tired and they'll say something they shouldn't have said. Mm-hmm. Or they will start getting they will start going down a route that you wouldn't go down so like i've had to deal with people who've they helped me a lot having different views to me on brexit yeah and it shouldn't be hard but it is (laughs) yeah so you think you think you're going to resonate with them the whole time or there's always going to be this this doesn't happen no and and, you know there, there are some people who are there for good like my wife and i were together for good that's it but you know, the, the the better that you know people, the more you see that everyone's a person. Or or to, to quote one book that I saw, I think it was uh, John Ortberg. I can't remember who, it wasn't John Ortberg. Someone else wrote a book called Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or or even even the um even though it's a little bit outside of the context, but still the more I learn, the less I know, right? Like so the more you learn to know a person, <laughs> the less you be- know them. It applies there too. Doing a PhD seems to make you dumber. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Share with us, Jonathan, where you're currently at, because you went from having a person say, you know, your accent's going to be an issue. You're never going to be a great inter- interpreter to suddenly somebody changing that uh, choice of words in your mind and saying, that's your unique selling point. You're going to be a great interpreter. Where are you at now? I'm me. Oh, I love that. And there's so much to me, though. Yeah. So, like, am I interpreting as much as I would like to know? Uh, am I in a market where every interpreter that I know is an interpreter and something else? Yes. Mm. Um, 
you know, some of the interpreters that I love to work with the most have actually a full-time job and interpreting is is what they do and interpreting is something they do extra. And I don't blame them for that because I can see why you would do that. And mm-hmm. it, it makes perfect sense. Um, so I, me, I love interpreting. I love conference interpreting. I love business interpreting. My first love still is church interpreting. Uh, I love research. I love speaking in public. But if any of that starts taking away from the fact that I'm a husband and a father and a Christian, it, it all goes. It has to be, we have a saying in Christianity, certain things have to be always, you know, you have to always be on the altar. That is that if something has to go, it has to go. Hmm. Um, and the moment you you hold stuff, it's like, let me tell you a silly story. Last year, I applied for a, a research grant and, you know, I'd gone to Finland to prep for it. And I put so much into this and so much of my time into it. And it just seemed like the most amazing opportunity. It seemed like I got the perfect help. We got, so, I got so attached that I started learning Finnish. I assumed that that would happen. And I held it so, 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 so tightly because it was going to be my road out of post-Brexit Scotland. It was going to be all that. And suddenly when I got the rejection, then it's not fun anymore. Mm. Um, then I started, you know, I, I, you know, do I go get another job? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And realizing that I mean, no matter what other, what, whatever label you put on me, I'm still going to be me. Absolutely. And actually, okay, it didn't turn out the way I wanted, but eventually, and this is like, eventually is one of the most powerful words in the world, I think, but eventually is such a powerful phrase. Mm. But eventually I got back up, got help from from friends and family, and I was ready to try again. Love it. And I didn't realize, but like a couple of months after I got that, I received, I managed to agree on a contract for the most expensive consultant interpreter project that I had ever delivered. Wow. And so I was listening to a guy called Stephen Furtick today, and he said, what's on the other side of you giving up? Mm-hmm. You might, you could give up now and you could be like one day away from something something amazing happening. Right. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, learning to hold things lightly is the hardest thing, one of the hardest things to do. But for the sake of people's mental health, we have to. Yeah. You know, I feel really sorry for the interpreters who were fully booked and then lost like thousands of euros worth of jobs mm. overnight. Because if your identity is, I travel all around the world every day and I'm interpreting, and suddenly you're not doing that for how long? We don't know. Mm. So true. It, as soon as you make your job or anything, your identity that isn't about, you know, I'm me, you're, you're setting yourself up for a fall. Jonathan, you are a conference interpreter, or you do conference interpreting. Um, You are a podcaster, a fellow podcaster, which I totally, oh my gosh, I'm going to connect all this stuff, obviously, because it's hilarious to go on this, uh, to listen to these episodes, Troublesome Terps. Um, But you're also a researcher and you write with one, well, one particular article that I'm super interested in us delving into is because I really felt like this was such a connector for me because I'll tell you, and I, you know, you know, I'm a community interpreter. That's what I do. Uh, I specialize in K through 12 education, but I often felt like we were kind of uh, all alone, you know, uh, this, this small group of interpreters with really nobody noticing us. And 
when this whole situation of the pandemic started and I started reaching out and looking into what are others doing right in the field mm-hmm. that I can pull in and use in, 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 in our school district, I came to find out that things weren't actually as different as people painted them out to be, <laughs> except for, you know, where we were interpreting. And so your article is titled interpreting is interpreting. And I'd love for you to elaborate more on this notion, please. Okay. So let me give you the non-technical summary of that. And that is that interpreting is one profession that just happens to take place in a variety of settings with a variety of constraints. Mm. I'm not the person who originated that phrase or that idea. I owe both that phrase and the key idea to Holly Mickelson who I believe, uh, I think she's retired now, but she was a court interpreter trainer. And she presented a paper at a conference in 1999. And as far as I can see, it was basically forgotten. Mm. And she started out, she wrote a paper called Interpreting is Interpreting or Is It? And she pointed out that she found it very troubling that you had this kind of hierarchy in interpreting, where even if you think of it in terms of like pay and conditions and how safe interpreters are, you get, you know, institutional and conference interpreters at the top in most countries where, where they exist and where you get big international organisations, they're the best paid interpreters. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Then you might get kind of business interpreters, depending, and, and you'll get court interpreters and you, you work all your way down and eventually you get to community interpreters. Hello. And, and goodness knows what happens if you go even past community interpreters and, and start talking about, you know, child interpreters and uh, non-professional interpreters. You know, that it just, and what happened, and she mentioned this in passing, and it's something that I think I got to in the paper as well, is that because conference interpreting professionalized, and I'm using scare quotes, uh, professionalized first in the 1940s and 50s, everyone thought that whatever conference interpreting said was right, was right. And so you see that court interpreting, when it professionalizes, looks to the what the conference interpreters had said, and they would say, well, we'll do that. Mm. And one of the things I point out in my paper is if you actually imagine for a world that none of those distinctions exist and you just ask yourself, what are the differences between interpreting in these different settings? And and let's make it easy. If I were to take a transcript of interpreting, wipe out all the key terminology, replace it with, I don't know, bananas, what could you tell about the the way the interpreter was acting that would tell you this is a court interpreter, this is a... A community interpreter, this is a conference interpreter. And it turns out if you look at the, and this is the answer to the question of, you know, what does it mean that it's not empirically signed? Well, it not being empirically signed means that you find interpreters in court using exactly the same techniques to solve very similar problems to interpreters who are working in conferences. Mm. You find community interpreters doing very similar things to business interpreters. And here's the kicker for me that really tipped me over the edge was you can find non-professional interpreters acting in similar fashions to professional interpreters and vice versa. And you can even find professionally qualified interpreters occasionally volunteering in non-professional settings. Mm. And so I wrote the article. Originally, I just wrote, I, I just planned it as let's get rid of the idea of interpreting settings because it's massively unhelpful and it tends to be more about politics than it is about anything else. Mm. You know, look at the 
you have some amazing associations like ATA, ITI, and people who are we're translators and interpreters, and it doesn't matter what kind you are, we've got your we're you know come and join us. That's great. But for various reasons, and I'm not criticizing the associations themselves, I'm just saying this is the political reality. You have healthcare interpreting associations, you have conference interpreting associations, you have probably educational interpreter associations. Mm-hmm. And what you have is you have the space being divided up, and there's a lot of political sense to it. But the moment you divide up the space, whether you mean to or not, you erect walls. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, something that caught me, my PhD supervisor is a sign language and sign language interpreting expert. And within a couple of years of starting my PhD, I realized that some of the most forward thinking theory, some of the most forward thinking research that I was applying to church interpreting came from sign language interpreting. Oh, wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I realized, look on, hold on, if I want to... I, I spotted this pattern in the literature that the sign language interpreting community would talk about something and five or so years later, the spoken language interpreting community would suddenly get it, not knowing the sign language interpreting community had already been there. Right. And then you're like, huh. So then, simple example, which I didn't cover in the paper, which I think I might cover somewhere else. Remote interpreting suddenly becomes huge during lockdown. Do you know who was already doing video remote interpreting for <laughs> decades? The sign language interpreting community. Do you know who was very rarely asked how to make how to make it work? The sign language interpreting community. Wow. And it was incidents like that that that, that made me that made me want to write the paper. And if anything, it came out end of last year. I think I, I wrote it at the beginning of last year. It came out the end of last year. If anything, as time has gone on, I have been stronger and stronger and in my commitment that interpreting is interpreting as one profession. Um, and, you know, now that practically everything is remote, hmm. I asked a, a scholar friend of mine recently, I said, okay, you know, we, we all want to study interpreting and, and a lot of people want to study interpreting transcripts. I'm not a huge fan for various reasons, but, you know, now, now that every interpreter is doing remote, What's actually the difference between an interpreter having to do a little bit of simultaneous because the teacher's going too fast in the classroom and if the lesson's going to get across, the interpreter has to do simultaneous. What's the difference between that and a conference interpreter doing simultaneous because the speaker needs it to be interpreted simultaneously? Right. I've done a a tiny bit of business interpreting and I realised actually... Aside from the fact that one of my office mates got her PhD on business interpreting, which was really cool, <laughs> but most of this, most of the stuff that I was learning to do in those in those assignments was because I had accidentally read stuff on dialogue interpreting in community settings. You know, if, if you're interpreting for kids, if you can't pick up when something hasn't been understood or has been misunderstood, you're not going to be an interpreter for long. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hold on, so I'm in, in a business setting. We're talking about some multi-million pound deal. And the best stuff for me to use, the best techniques for me to use aren't coming from conference interpreting where I'm trained. They're coming from stuff that I happen to come across on other forms of interpreting. Yeah, hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so true. And, and so I would, I know that realistically we're not going to wipe away, you know, 50 years of, hierarchy in in a week but I do want to say that I am convinced that for possibly with the exception of sign language interpreting because those guys are brilliant but you know you don't know (laughs) I I am convinced that for most 
interpreting in most contexts, the best thing that you can do to improve the interpreting that you're delivering is figure out what people in other contexts are doing. Mm -hmm. Because they will be asking different questions that you haven't thought of. They will be facing problems that you probably don't have a name for yet, but suddenly you will because they, they'll have invented one. So, you know, if you're doing like um, educational interpreting, one of my questions would be, well, what can we learn from interpreting in situations where people have, um, you know, they're in a country and they, they might be well-educated in their country, but they're definitely not aware of what's going on in the country they're in now or people who have had some sort of injury. And, you know, if you think about the analogues elsewhere, it makes a whole lot of sense. You know, that you talk about, you know, you get educational disparities even between adults. And you think, well, what an interpreter is doing in that situation where there's a massive educational or power disparity between the people they're interpreting for, I'm not going to find much literature on that in confidence interpreting. Mm -hmm. But I will find it in sign language interpreting. I will find it in educational interpreting. I'll probably even find it in medical interpreting if I look hard enough. Right. And this is where you begin to think, well, who else might have come across, not my issue, but an issue that looks a lot like it. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the easiest way to explain it is like if you're doing research and say you're the first person ever to do research on, I don't know, interpreting and I don't know much research in interpreting in, in primary school classrooms. No PhD, uh, ex no PhD examiners and no journal editors would let you write, no one's done research on this, so there's no literature for me to review. They won't let you do that. Mm. What they expect you to do is to go, well, I'm talking here about educational interpreting. Well, I should be talking about education. I should be talking about what we know about interpreting. I should be talking about what we know about interpreting and imbalances of power. I should be talking about what we know about um, multilingual learning. Then you, they, But that's how researchers are taught to think. Well, research, researchers who are taught well are taught to think round corners like that. But if you have a, a hierarchy where confidence interpreting is on top and then it's business and court and then it's all the way down, you're not taught to think like that. You're taught, this is my little corner. I'm going to do as well as I can in my little corner. Right. And this, and I have my, you know, we, we've all got so many issues in our own little corner that, that you have to physically make time, force yourself to make time to talk to someone who interprets in a different area to you. And that's where yeah. podcasting is so great because you meet interpreters who do interpreting that you didn't even know existed. Exactly or even just in their specialties that you wouldn't even think about applying, you know? <laughs> there is no interest too small to have its own international conference. <laughs> I think one of the things that I also found interesting was the fact that after I also came across the same, you know, idea of, I mean, we, we are actually all the same. It's, you know, whatever we're presenting is completely different. Absolutely. But, um, you know, the practice in itself, I thought this is, we're all the same, but then I thought, you know, what would be great is if rather than, you know, itsy bitsy Mireya looking and connecting with, you know, how can I pull from the information that this person and that other person is sharing on their social media platforms, why aren't the associations that are representing these specialties getting together to sing one same tune? You know, like I, I just, then it was like, I, I don't understand why in such a, why aren't we thinking out of the box is basically so, what I was getting at. Well, I, I spent six years on the board of an association. <laughs> 
Two things. First, I want us to all remove the I'm only itsy bitsy me mentality. Mm. So we're as big as everyone we're connected to. And here's the thing. The more people that you get connected to, the more people that you talk to, the more you get to the point where someone can say, you know, if someone asks me a question on medical interpreting, I have a needle phobia. Okay, mm. right? Um, I, I faint at the sight of blood. I should not be anywhere near medical interpreting, but I know people who do it. Mm. It, it, and I would be able to send them to the right person. You don't need to know everything. You just need to know the right people. That's a totally different thing. The other thing is, is that associations, increasingly from my experience, associations are wanting to sing the same song as each other. Mm. But it's easy to forget that even the biggest association in the world has hard limits. You know, you look at an association and you go, I'm paying however many hundred for my membership. Why are they not doing more? And then you see the association books and you realize that, you know, I'm not at liberty to say, but a huge percentage of your membership fees is just keeping the ship floating. Wow. Because running an association, especially if you have staff, especially if you have an office, especially if you have conferences to put on or CPD to put on, it's expensive work. And certainly in, in the association that I was on the board of, all the board members are volunteers. Mm-hmm. So anything that gets done is being done because they're taking it out of their paid work time. Right. And this is where, you know, I got to the point, I think after I'd been on the association like two, three years, people would come up to you and say, why is, why is ITI not doing this? And I said, um, would you like to? No, 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 ITI should do it. It's like, well, if you're an ITI member, what you do is what ITI does. Right. You have to do things right. You know, don't go saying that you're an ITI representative without getting board permission first. Please don't do that to your association. They will, they will get annoyed at you and they'll get annoyed at me. But... <laughs> You know, if you think your association should be getting into schools, write a plan for going into schools, present it to the board, and they, they might say yes. Mm. <laughs> and that's the frightening thing when you come up with an idea and the board say yes, would you like to go and do it? <laughs> right. And this is The answer is not, the, the question is not, why are the association not doing things? Because the association is its members. It's nothing more or nothing less than its members. You so know, it's legally, what, it why aren't status. we, yeah, why aren't we doing it? That's yeah. the question. Yes. And, Love and that. The reason usually is because we have someone else'ism. Someone else has to do it. Is we either wait for an expert. <laughs> do you mm. know how experts become expert? They do things <laughs> wrong lots of times until eventually they accidentally get something right. I love or, that. Or, or they get, so my, my dad, when he was alive, my dad said there are two ways to learn. You can learn from other people's mistakes or you can learn from your own. Learning from other people's mistakes is much faster and less painful. <laughs> I cannot agree more. And and so experts become experts. Yeah they, yeah, they start with training. Yes, they do the book work and stuff. But a lot of time experts become experts because they tried and because they practiced. And, you know, some might say, I, I, I would really love the press to take more notice of translation and interpreting. Well, find a way of learning how to deal with the press. Talk to your association about training if they have it. Or at least if you can't represent your association, you can represent yourself. Mm. Don't go out saying that you're a representative of all translators and interpreters. Certainly not. <laughs> but if you think the press should be taking more notice of translation and interpreting, think what would happen if they took more notice of you. Yes. 
And this is where you you readjust people's expectations, you readjust people's thinking. You know, there are some things that you have to wait for someone else to do. I am not a lawyer. There are lawyer things that need done that I can't do. Fine. But if it's something that is within your power to get trained in or to try, then try. Then try, (laughs) exactly. Find a way to try or get around people who are already doing it. And try, and I tell you, there's no association in the world that is ever that is that has put their hand up and said we've got too many volunteers. Yes, I love that. I love that. You know, it's uh, and we've said it here before on this platform. We want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. And so, if we can yeah. offer that solution, the better, obviously, because now we're not. It's not just us hoping that it would happen, but we're also imparting that solution for for others to have as a solution, but we've become part of it now. And and never be afraid of being criticized or laughed at. Mm. The laughing bit is the harder, the harder bit. <laughs> but if you're afraid of criticism, you're afraid of success because the two come together. I love that. Um I the the pastor that I had through my teens said uh, what was it he said he he said um if you have a heart for something it probably means that God wants you to, to start doing it. I believe that so much. And you're like, okay, well, get on with it. And no, you can't always get on with it tomorrow. It's another another one of these things is I have stuff that I've been wanting to do for a decade now, and I'm just beginning to see the tiniest glimpses. There's always a road to something. And so like when I was two, about a year and a half into my career, I got into the press for interpreting. I was, if you look up Glaswegian interpreter, it's, it's my face that's there. I became the first Glaswegian, Glasgow, Glaswegian is like the way they use language in the city of Glasgow. And it's it's okay. very slangy, it's its own accent. And so I got in the press as the world's first Glaswegian interpreter. Had I known what I know now about the press and about taking advantage of press coverage, I would have made thousands out of that. Hmm. Never got a single job off it because it came too early. I didn't know how to handle it. I loved it, but I didn't know how to handle it. And so, you know, sometimes the things that you have a heart for aren't going to be something you can do today, but there's something that you can do training for today. There's something you can read about today that you can volunteer and help someone else do today. Love that. Jonathan, what would you like to see the interpreting community embrace? <sighs> Themselves. <laughs> um, so Elaborate I, on that. Yeah. I love so It's I, deep. <laughs> I've talked for ages about business and I'm not naturally good at the business or marketing side. And so for years I walked around thinking I can never be a good interpreter because I'm rubbish at business because I'd learned early on the the importance of business skills and what went wrong and what drove me to having a mental, really some really bad mental health issues. Well, drove me to having like an episode two years into my career was that I was trying to do what I thought businesses did in a way that did not fit me at all. What was that? So I was trying to get interpreting work by bugging as many agencies as I could and going on as many job boards as I could and applying for every- And anyone who knows me realized that repetition and me do not get on together. Mm. Like uh, my boredom threshold is negative. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if I, if one of the hardest things for Lachlan, for me is we've got quite a, you know, we've got routines. I don't like, apart from like getting up and brushing your teeth and stuff, like routines, I just, oh, <laughs> I, I like creativity. I like freedom. Yeah. And that wasn't what was happening. And so there's one aspect of embracing ourselves is that we don't have to do things the way that everyone else has, has always done them. Mm. 
your business doesn't, you don't have to be a great business person, but you do have to find a way of marketing and attracting clients that works for you and that you enjoy while you're doing. I couldn't do the phone 100 agencies thing because by the 10th phone call, I would be wanting to give up. It's just not how I am wired. But the other way that we need to embrace, embrace ourselves is to realize that the only hierarchy was the one that got built and things that get built can be unbuilt. Mm. Um, there's so much concern in interpreting about machine interpreting, so much concern about poor conditions, and these are legitimate concerns. Right. But I've been making the point for a while that part of the reason why these things are so scary is because the way that we've been accustomed to talk about interpreting in public has encouraged people to look for the replacement to interpreters. Wow. If we talk about we're accurate, impartial, we're so good, it's as if we're not even there. It's, it's something I said in my second book. We're asking people to find a, a solution that isn't actually there. We're inviting people to replace us with machines. If we tell them we're machines, then mm -hmm. why would they not go for the cheaper machines? So we, we embrace ourselves by saying there are things that we try to be as interpreters where we don't have the right to you know, completely make up what someone said and give a false impression. We don't have that right. But we do have a lot of power and a lot of responsibility. And if we were to embrace ourselves by accepting that power and responsibility and being able to talk intelligently about that power and responsibility, we we do ourselves a lot of favours. And the last aspect of embracing ourselves is I now know that I'm not the only man, uh, the only interpreter to have had um, something that completely flowed me like a burnout episode. Mm -hmm. I now know that I'm not the only one. And mm -hmm. I once, I was talking about the building your support team thing at a conference once. And I said, you know, the, the beginning of getting better starts with admitting when things aren't right. Mm -hmm. And so I got, there were, I don't know, 20, 30 people in a room in Poland. I got them all to stand in a big wide circle. And the hilarious thing is if you ask adults to stand in a circle, it's always the shape of a potato. <laughs> um, so I got them to stand on a potato and I just went around the room and I said, you know, your, your translators and interpreters, you're used to talking, it's fine, but I just want you to say one sentence and I just want you to say, I'm, and then how you're actually feeling, not fine. I, you know, I banned the word fine. I was like, fine is not allowed. You know, are you struggling? Are you inspired? Are you exhilarated? Are you happy? Are you near to tears? And we go around this room and a lot of people are like, you know, I, I'm I'm happy or I'm interested or whatever. And there were two people that really caught my eye. One of them said, I'm struggling and in quite a small voice. And I knew it was a challenge to say it in front of a big group, but I thought if everyone's saying it, if I start, then that will help. Mm -hmm. One person said, I'm struggling. And another person said, I'm not okay. So, you know, I don't know if I caught the not okay person, but just as I wind down the session and go for for a cup of tea or whatever beverage was available at the time, the person who said I'm struggling came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, that's the first time I've ever been able to admit to anyone that things aren't okay. He said, if, if that's all I get from the, this conference, that was worth it. Wow. I've never, I've done that session a couple of times since I've never quite had that impact. But you know, if we can create a culture where it's okay to be not okay, um, you ask an interpreter how's business and they'll always say, up until lockdown, they would always say good. For the mm -hmm. first time I'm seeing interpreters going, yeah, I've not had any work for X number of months. You know what? That's okay. It's not a judgment on you personally. 
mm-hmm. you are not your your turnover, you are not your profit margin, you are not your turnover. I nearly flew off the handle at someone who talked about, you know, your worth and your value being your price. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. Um, it may be your perceived value in the eyes of clients, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. But so the, the third way of embracing ourselves is embracing the fact that we're all human, that we're all going to have rubbish days, rubbish months, rubbish years. And that's okay. And that's okay. And that's okay. And that phrase, that's okay. It reminds me, there's a guy called Brian Clemmer. I'm telling a lot of stories, but that's, that's often I think. The embracing that that's okay reminds me of, of a really important story. I was at this kind of business thing and a lot of it went way over my head because a lot of it were for people with big businesses and stuff. And I've never really wanted to have a huge business. I know that sounds Irish, but there we go. So this guy, Brian, Brian Clemmer's talking, he's talking about all creative problem solving and it was fun. And then he said... Um, he said that he'd seen too many business people crash, like massive crash, like millionaires completely crash out. And so he started investigating and he said, okay, what I want you to do just to get used to this way of thinking is to name the biggest challenge or the biggest problem or the biggest issue that you have right now and say after it the words, and I'm satisfied. Mm-hmm. You can get there from a business people going, what is he doing? <laughs> And you got some people saying some really tough things like, you know, I, I need to sack 10 employees or whatever, and I'm satisfied. And everyone's like, what's this guy on? <laughs> and he said, well, it's been his experience that unless you can be satisfied where you are now, any attempt that you make to reach something better is going to end up crippling you because you wait for the next step and the next step and the next step to be satisfied, to be whole, to accept yourself. You know, um, I'll be a proper interpreter when. I'll be a real interpreter when. I'll be, um, I'll be happy when. He's like, the, if you keep going like that, you will cripple yourself and you will crash. It's guaranteed. Mm-hmm. He said, unless you can get to the point where you can look your biggest challenge and your biggest problem in the eyes and say, and I'm satisfied because the challenge is not you. Right then you cannot grow consistently. And it's like one of the one of the only two things I remember from that session. And it's is it easy? No, it's not. You you try waking up the, the morning after you know the dream that you were attached to got crushed and saying that's okay. Yeah that that, that that's that's gonna take that's gonna be tough for a while. Hmm. But is there any other route that you can go that is sustainable? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think being even, even it's the power of words, right, Jonathan, because even being able to say, and I am okay, because at the moment you are okay. You know, it's circumstantial stuff that's happening that, you know, perhaps, I don't know, it's time to pivot. It's time to look at things differently. It's time to grow, whatever that may be. But at the moment you are okay. And I think that was a powerful, that powerful moment there when he said, it's the first time that I've been able to admit that out loud. I think that is so powerful because it's one thing is to recognize it. I'm not okay. And then another thing is to say it and just being able to say those spoken words. I think it it, it just, it, it makes an incredible difference. And to say it to a bunch of strangers, <laughs> you know what but I mean? Like in a way it's easier. So like I tell people, give me 10,000 people that I don't know and I'll talk to them for an hour and I won't even break sweat. Give me six of my friends and I'm going to need to go to the bathroom several times before I step on that stage. Yeah. Why is that? Because they know me. 
Mm. <laughs> and and here's the thing, like I'm more comfortable BP conference in the organized by a guy called Chababan, who's the most incredible conference organizer I've ever met. A couple of times Chababan's put me on the Chaba's put me on the stage seven o'clock in the evening, everyone's ready to go to dinner. And he's like, Can you wake them up for me? 400 translators and interpreters, of course I can. No problem. You know, give, give me a give me a crowd of 400 and I'm and I'm happy. The, the bigger the crowd, the happier I am. The bigger the stage, the happier I am. But then you start trying to teach something to people who know you, who saw your last bad attitude, who mm. aren't who who don't fall for you looking big. Who have seen um, you at your most vulnerable. Yes. Mm. Um you try, you know, you you try talking about hope when people realize how you reacted the last time you lost hope. Yeah, that that, that that's gonna take that that's gonna take guts. Mm. But I tell you the honesty that you learn, and I, I guess it's it's another thing that we as a profession haven't learned. We don't this will sound strange. I don't think we know a lot about honesty yet. We know a lot about putting people on pedestals, we know a lot about you know, marketing and PR. Well, we don't know about PR, that's a whole issue. You know, <laughs> but we, we know a lot about people building their own image. And I see absolutely nothing wrong with people receiving the due praise for doing great work. But the people who I look up to the most are the people who can stand on a stage with everyone saying they're a success and talk about their failures. Absolutely. I love that. Jonathan, what new or future projects or endeavors are you currently working on that you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, so by the time this goes out, I will have spoken at the Innovation and Interpreting Conference. Oh, tell um, us about that. So that's two of my friends, Alexander Drexel, who's the, the man is, is trying to find the right words for Alexander. He's one of the most generous people I know. He's one of the smartest people I know. He's one of the most down-to-earth people I know. I don't think he realizes how great he is. Um, and Josh Goldsmith, I mean, the, the two of them, if there's anything about interpreting technology that they don't know, it probably hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> Genius. Yeah. <laughs> they just, and, and they're like, you know, we've got 25 of the world's experts on interpreting technology. I felt like saying, yeah, 24 plus me. <laughs> So, so I'm speaking in that on uh, the subject of saving human interpreting. Mm. And I'm doing it the only way I know how, which is with honesty. Mm. Because since I wrote my second book, uh, Interpreters versus Machines, available in all good bookshops, uh, especially uh, go to your US independent bookshop saying, please get it from an independent bookshop. It's way better than Amazon. But yes, so I wrote Interpreters versus Machines. And it was, I'm a field researcher. I like to be where the interpreting is taking place and watch and interview people. And you get a field researcher who's used to studying people who suddenly gets a challenge of, my profession's worried about machine interpreting. Mm. What can I write about that? And that was the adventure that book came up. So I'm um, talking, basically speaking off the back of that book uh, on a saving human interpreting there. I think I mentioned them doing a debate with Elise about Celius probably around the same time. Yeah. There are some projects in the pipeline that I'm not going to say yet because I still have to get the right people to approve. Um, the one project that I am happy to announce because it's going to take a mammoth task for me to ever finish it is I want I would like to be to write a novel. Really? Yes, I've I'm beginning to plot a novel on interpreting. Um I joke it's as if Dan Brown actually knew what he was talking about and um, <laughs> writing about interpreting. Um, but realizing that there's a lot of, so I'm, I have a, a vague interest in, I think I said I've got a vague interest in archaeology. Mm. 
I one of the things that inspired the interpreting as interpreting paper is reading bits of interpreting history and going that was two and a half thousand years ago. And I read, so like um, Francine Kaufman wrote in French about the Jewish interpreters in about five four four BCE, um, and some of the the practices that came from that I knew about them the the five four four BCE interpreters, but I didn't know what happened after. Yeah. And some of the stuff they have to deal with, with, you know, like the people who commission them thinking that they know how to interpret better than the interpreters and giving them instructions while they're interpreting. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Relatable. I, I, I may have experienced that once or twice or a few <laughs> times. Um, people getting upset that you use this this word that rather than this one or this. I'm like, that, that's vaguely familiar to me in some ways or other. I'm like, hold on, these people are 544 BC. Right. Interpreting, doing an incredible, I mean, build, rebuilding the identity of an entire people group, that story itself, Nehemiah 8, oh my goodness, for interpreters, that's a really inspiring story. Um, mm. Yeah, that I, I see I see this. And then you look at, you know, I need to be careful because I've got another, another paper that's coming out, uh, looking at the similarities between interpreting and translation and realising, hold on, there's some, so... At the moment, I'm doing bridge building stuff, but I would like to write a novel and I'm going to wait, um, wind little bits that I know about interpreting history through it so that the characters will grow and learn as they come across interpreting history and see themselves reflected in, you know, 2,000-year-old incidents, 1,500-year-old incidents. Oh There's even God. some incidents from the US, so that makes it, what, 50 years old? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, when you realise that we're not the first people to do this, we're not right. the first people to face a challenge. The technology thing, maybe it's new, but can you imagine like the uh, some of the very first recorded translations were interpreters interpreting and people writing down what they said and then criticizing it afterwards? Right. And you think we're we're not alone. <laughs> okay, fine. So so I I'm I'm happy to say I'm working on a novel because for that to get published, I'm gonna need an agent. So if anyone knows a really good literary agent. <laughs> who's happy to take on a novel that is kind of its own genre so far because it's been ages since I've uh, read a the novel, <laughs> then then send them to me. I, I've written the plot. I've got part of a chapter done, but I've tried to sit down and write a novel at the moment has been hard. <laughs> that, that's the one project I'm, I'm happy to share. And if anyone would like, uh, I'm, I'm really keen to explore how you do workshops that I've done in person, but over LinkedIn. Over not LinkedIn, over Zoom, um, because you know the the building your support team. I've done once over Zoom and realised I have to change the dynamics of this. Mm. There's also one workshop I do where I do very little talking, and it was the most popular one for a while. I still didn't get a hint. <laughs> <laughs> There's one called Strategic CPD where rather than me telling people how to uh, strategize your interpretive development, I teach people interview techniques and they. They help each other. Oh, I love that. Because there's half the time we know the answer, we just haven't been asked the right question yet. Love it. Jonathan, I know that if someone Googled your name, like all sorts of stuff would come up and they could find out all kinds of things about you and how to connect with you. But where are you most active on social media? Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? So I have two uh, Twitter profiles. If you want my business uh, commercial interpreting, it's in, at IntegLangsBiz, which is short for Integrity Languages. So um, 
there's a long story as to why my Twitter handle is so hard to pronounce. I will send you that for the show notes. At Integ Langs Biz is my Twitter, it is my commercial and interpreting Twitter. If you want me talking about research, talking about the old Christian stuff, um, then it's at Jonathan D. Downey. Uh, so that's where my research goes first, is onto that Twitter feed. Mm. Also, my website is integritylanguages.co.uk. And it's now properly secured, which is nice. Recently <laughs> moved to a new web server, so it should be quicker. I hope it's quicker than it was. Awesome. Um, that gets a lot of my uh, my blog there. And this is where everyone who's pitched a post to me has failed to understand this. My blog on integritylanguages.co.uk is my client-facing blog. Mm. I try to write stuff that I think clients will be interested in on that blog. Mm-hmm. I have a personal blog, which I probably won't ever invite people to do guest posts on because it's just me coming up with research ideas, waffling. Uh, I wrote something on there. People liked it, so I turned it into a publication because I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, so <laughs> so I, I just got what's called a DOI, which is like an academic identifier to say this has been published and this is mine. Um, so I, my research stuff often goes on my personal blog first unless it's directly client-centered. So if you follow me at Jonathan D. Downey, you will see research blog posts come up. Um, and yeah, that, that's, oh yeah, and you can also find me on the Troublesome Terps podcast. And one that I keep forgetting to mention, I have a YouTube channel. Trying to get videos on at the moment is tricky for various reasons. <laughs> but a YouTube ch- channel called Inside Interpreting. And the best bits of that channel, although I love the fact that all the videos that are just me are like five minutes or less, that's a really good uh, discipline. Um, but on my YouTube channel, Inside Interpreting. I want to thank you so very much, Jonathan, for your time, for allowing me the opportunity to pick your brain a little bit and get to know you a little more and everything that you have to share because there's so much great stuff. I think you're doing incredible things. I think you are delving into you know um, topics and conversations that we really should be getting into and just, you know, being able to embrace and thinking outside of the box. I love this term of a phrase of embrace who you are, Mm. especially nowadays. And I think that, you know, if we've taken the opportunity that has been given to us, and in fact, it is opportunity, if that's the way we want, choose to look Mm. at it, then we've been able to accept a little more parts of us that probably we weren't so open to accepting prior to this whole COVID situation mm. happening. So thank you so very much for the opportunity for being here and for sharing your story with us. And I look forward to others also delving into the information as well. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.